You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Biowar disinformation. A new wiper is discovered in Ukrainian systems. Cyber criminals look for letters of mark from both sides. Ukrainian cybersecurity firms and intelligence services mobilize against Russia. Ben Yellen evaluates cyber engagements in the crisis. A protester crashes a Russian news broadcast. DDoS takes down Israeli sites. China claims to have captured NSA hacking tools. Our guest is Ben Brooks, CEO of Transcend, with a look at data privacy and recent trends in cybercrime. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, March 15, 2022. The operations map maintained for the public by the British Ministry of Defense shows more Russian airstrikes but continued sluggish progress of ground forces. There are reports that in some areas, notably around Kyiv, Russian forces have halted their advance and turned to constructing field fortifications. That is, they're now digging in and not moving forward, for the time being at least. ESET researchers have found a new wiper they're calling Caddy Wiper, the third one Russian operators have used to hit Ukrainian targets during Russia's war against Ukraine. ESET tweeted, quote, This new malware erases user data and partition information from attached drives. ESET telemetry shows that it was seen on a few dozen systems in a limited number of organizations. End quote. First observed yesterday morning, the malware seems to have been compiled the same day it was deployed. CaddyWiper has little in common with its two predecessors, as ESET put it, Caddy Wiper does not share any significant code similarity with Hermetic Wiper, Isaac Wiper, or any other malware known to us. The sample we analyzed was not digitally signed. End quote. It did share one tactic with Hermetic Wiper deployment via group policy object, which suggests to ESET that the attackers had prior control of the target's network beforehand. The wiper's operators are apparently interested in maintaining persistence in the target's networks. Quote, Interestingly, Caddy Wiper avoids destroying data on domain controllers. This is probably a way for the attackers to keep their access inside the organization while still disturbing operations. End quote. The Verge reports that the effect of the attack seems so far to have been small. One organization appears to have been affected but the consequences of that attack and the organization's identity remain publicly unknown. 
Researchers at Aqua Security review the techniques, many involving commodity malware and cloud-native services, being used in the cyber phases of Russia's hybrid war against Ukraine. HelpNet Security reports that financially motivated, that is, criminal, cyber groups are choosing sides in Russia's war against Ukraine. In a rough-and-ready way, the criminals have tended to side with Russia, for whom many of them have historically served as privateers, and the hacktivists, like Anonymous, have tended to side with Ukraine. But this may be changing, as some Russophone gangs are expressing a willingness to hack Russian targets if there's a good prospect of making it pay. There also appear to be personal and ideological rifts in the underworld that are leading some gangs toward one side rather than the other. So, privateering is converging with hacktivism. Accenture reports that this is something new. Quote, For the first time in the more than 10 years that Accenture's cyber threat intelligence team has been tracking dark web activity, we're seeing previously coexisting financially motivated threat actors divided along ideological factions. Those actors who previously acted opportunistically with financial motivations and a global outlook are now following a highly targeted attack pattern. Pro-Ukrainian actors are refusing to sell, buy, or collaborate with Russian-aligned actors— and are increasingly attempting to target Russian entities in support of Ukraine. However, pro-Russian actors are increasingly aligning with hacktivist-like activity targeting enemies of Russia, especially Western entities due to their claims of Western warmongering. This change in targeting and motivation has had several far-reaching consequences for underground actors and the threat they pose. End quote. Politico describes how Ukrainian cybersecurity firms have pivoted from defense to offense, deploying their capabilities against Russian targets. The account takes Hacken as representative of the trend and describes the challenges of adjusting to the different set of norms that prevail in wartime. Cyber units of Ukraine's intelligence services are said to have successfully infiltrated the Kalashnikov Concern, a major Russian defense company, quote, Over three terabytes of data has been downloaded for analysis, which included everything from technical specifications of their civilian and military weapons to all of their financial data, including offshore shell companies, bank accounts, and customers, both illicit and licit, end quote. That's reporting from Inside Cyber Warfare, who add that the technical details of weapons have been shared with Western intelligence agencies. Bloomberg reports that the Russian state-directed television news show Vremya, broadcast by First Channel, was briefly disrupted by a young woman, subsequently identified as Marina Ovsyanakova, an editor with the station, who walked behind a newsreader holding a sign that said in English, No war, followed by the message in Russian, Stop the war. Don't believe propaganda. They're lying to you. She spoke a few sentences, including Stop the war. The newsreader spoke louder in an attempt to drown our Ms. Ovsinakova, and then the program cut quickly to a generic scene of a hospital. The New York Times has video of the protest. First Channel told TASS, quote, An incident took place with an extraneous woman in shot. An internal check is being carried out, end quote. The gesture of dissent was brief but remarkable. Ms. Ovsinakova was taken into custody by police, and will probably be charged with an administrative violation for discrediting Russia's armed forces. 
A Medusa editor tweeted a link to a video Miss Ozyanakova posted shortly before her protest. The Telegraph's translation of her remarks run as follows, quote, Unfortunately, in recent years, I worked on Channel One, making Kremlin propaganda, and I am now very ashamed of this. I'm ashamed that I allowed lies to be spoken from the TV screen. I'm ashamed I allowed Russian people to be zombified. We were silent in 2014 when this was all just beginning. We didn't go to protests when the Kremlin poisoned Navalny. We just silently observed this anti-human regime. And now the whole world has turned away from us. End quote. The Israeli National Cyber Directorate has confirmed that Israel sustained a distributed denial-of-service attack yesterday, CyberScoop reports. The attack briefly knocked some government sites offline. While most service was quickly restored, some overseas sites remained unavailable into this morning. NetBlocks traced the outages to two leading Israeli telcos, Bezek and Cellcom. Haaretz says that a defense establishment source told the paper that it was the largest such attack the company has experienced and that it was believed to be the work of an unnamed nation-state. That state is widely thought to be Iran, but the Israeli government has offered no specific attribution. Chinese security services claim to have captured an NSA hacking tool, but the register points out that there's less here than meets the eye. The tool in question, Nopen, is old news, having been leaked by the shadow brokers back in 2016. Intel 471 describes recent trends in ransomware attacks. Looking at the fourth quarter of 2021, they found that the most common strains of ransomware were, in descending order, Lockbit 2.0, Conti, Paisa, and Hive. The sectors most often affected were consumer and industrial products, manufacturing, professional services and consulting, real estate, life sciences and healthcare, technology, media and telecommunications, energy, resources, agriculture, public sector, financial services, and nonprofit. Sequence Security finds that cyber criminals are increasingly using APIs as attack vectors. The researchers see three trends in this area more variety in payment fraud, more sophisticated shopping bots, and more cunning account takeover attempts. And finally, Elon Musk has challenged President Putin single combat. Quote, I hereby challenge Vladimir Putin to single combat. Stakes are Ukraine. End quote. He emphasized his challenge in a subsequent tweet. Do you agree to this challenge? Mr. Musk even flashed some Cyrillic characters and some Russian phrases in the tweets, Cyrillic and Russian in the originals. But how will Mr. Putin get the message? Sure, the Cyrillic characters are probably helpful, but we hear Twitter's blocked where Vladimir Vladimirovich lives, poor guy. But if he takes Mr. Musk up on that virtual glove across the face, he's a wilder and crazier guy than we would have thought. A real Cyrillic character. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Data privacy firm Transcend recently surveyed decision makers in fintech, e-commerce, and B2C sales organizations to gain insights on their concerns over privacy regulations and compliance. Ben Brook is CEO of Transcend. Very few of those polled felt very confident in their organization's current ability to comply. This full range of privacy laws that are already in effect around the world And in fact, only one in five of uh, those surveyed said that they're confident that their company is compliant with global laws. And similarly, 89% of them were at least slightly concerned about their ability to keep up with new laws uh, that end up being enacted over the next year or two. So as we see new laws come into effect in Colorado and Virginia and uh, China and India, the layers of complexity that uh, are going in for compliance, uh, they're really compounding. And so it's driving a lot of concern within uh, within these organizations today. Yeah, one of the things that struck me as I was reading through the information that you shared was that um, it seems as though a lot of organizations are a bit frustrated with the situation here in the U.S., that there are, there are so many data privacy laws and it's hard to keep up. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what we're seeing is within the states, there's a fragmentation occurring of privacy laws where each state is passing its own privacy law that looks a little bit different from the other ones. And that means uh, a lot more complexity in terms of how one can regulate the way they use data, where it actually comes down to the geography of the end user in question. There's certainly some frustration across orgs uh, where it's just it's just plain difficult to keep up when 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 there's just so many uh, interwoven requirements. 
What about you know, all of this falling on the chief information officer or, or the CISO? I mean, is there any sense that we're heading towards a time when or it should be standard for organizations to have a chief privacy officer? Oh, I think absolutely. I, I think it's something we're already seeing is the rise of the chief privacy officer. We've actually uh, already seen that 25% of, uh, of the organizations surveyed um, had a chief op- privacy officer in place. And that's, that's a number that's effectively grown from zero over the past four years. And so we're definitely seeing that stakeholder rise into organizations, but it also does not necessarily completely take privacy off of the CISO's plate. So based on the information you've gathered here, what are your recommendations for organizations you know, moving ahead here? I mean, how... How should they plan uh, to operate in, in this new reality or where um, you know, privacy is going to have increased focus on it? Pretty much boil it down to two things. The first is having just the framework to be ready to basically ingest new laws that will come every year for the next decade. So basically accepting and then uh, planning for the fact that there will be compounding complexity uh, on the front of actually using data and actually having rules around each use case for data. So that, that, will, that will continue to compound over the next decade, I think. The next is to actually start investing in uh, infrastructure that is specifically built for privacy. So there's a rise in tooling uh, essentially focused on personal data specifically that helps businesses comply with these privacy laws. So for example, as I mentioned, at the top of the priority list was the need to automate these workflows for responding to privacy requests. That's a very unique infrastructure that uh, didn't exist um, you know, five years ago, where it's specially tailored to actually delete a given uh, individual across your data stack. So there's a really growing need to invest in the infrastructure that actually treats personal data as something is a special class of data that has to be governed and developing those capabilities to actually to actually go in and execute on any given individual. There's companies, Transcend, my company is one of them, that are specifically tailored for personal data and generally called data privacy infrastructure. That's Ben Brook from Transcend. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Interesting article caught my eye. This is uh, from Kim Zetter uh, writing over on Politico, really highlighting what we have and have not seen when it comes to cyber capabilities in this ongoing uh, war in uh, Russia and Ukraine. What's going on here, Ben? Yeah, so maybe I'm out of line here, but I almost found this article somewhat reassuring. Hmm. Uh, So we know that our intelligence agencies, the CIA and the NSA, have spent decades now um, spying on Russia's computer networks. They are collecting intelligence, both for the purposes of figuring out what Vladimir Putin's going to do, as they did uh, prior to this war in Ukraine, but also for the potential to order destructive cyber attacks on Putin's regime. 
I think we've always imagined that we would use this as a defensive weapon, that if we were attacked with some type of kinetic or cyber incident, that we would want to have the capabilities to respond in kind. But what this article gets at is uh, both sides, the United States and Russia, are treading very slowly in this potential cyber conflict. And I think the reason they are treading slowly is the same reason we didn't have widespread nuclear Armageddon during the Cold War, Mm. and that's mutually assured destruction. We don't know exactly what Russia's capabilities are, but if we went in and, uh, you know, for the purposes of responding to Russian aggression in Ukraine, damaged the critical infrastructure in Moscow. We shut off the lights, we damaged the sewer system, water treatment plants, etc. There's a very real fear that they not only would retaliate against us, which would escalate the conflict, and that certainly could be very difficult for our our own citizens, uh, having power cut off in a major American city Mm -hmm. or attacks on other parts of our critical infrastructure. But it could escalate from there. Uh, You know, that the cyber warfare could lead to kinetic warfare, which could eventually lead where uh, a place where none of us want to be, which is a full-on war between two nuclear powers. Right. So I just thought it was interesting and encouraging that both sides are treading lightly Government hackers have been working for the past couple of decades to develop these capabilities. I just think there's the reluctance to use them knowing that Russia potentially has the capability to retaliate. I find it fascinating that we we look at this and in retrospect, it makes absolute sense. But this is not the way that people were thinking going into this conflict. What do you make of that? Right. I think people were expecting uh, that Russia would have already used offensive cyber operations in Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, to help their war efforts, so shutting down Ukrainian power grids. A point that you made on on the Caveat podcast when we discussed this is they really haven't done that really because they think it would be detrimental to their own war effort. They've mm-hmm. needed to use the same cellular networks that are already deployed in Ukraine for their offensive military operations. Right. So I think we haven't seen that yet as as part of this conflict. I think the conflict has been, I don't want to say traditional, but has kind of been more of a 20th century type of warfare. Um, they, with their military through air and, and ground support, invaded a sovereign foreign country, and we responded with uh, economic sanctions. I think that's the safest place for all of us to be right now, uh, given that this could potentially turn into a large global conflict. I think people imagine that we would, if they destroyed Ukrainian power grids or uh, nuclear facilities or something or any other attack on critical infrastructure, I think people were anticipating that we might use our cyber capabilities to do the same in Russia. Uh, But I think there is a real reluctance to do that because of this fear of uh, escalation. Breaking into their country's core systems is something we frankly, have been able to do. It's kind of a power that we we can't use lightly because if our calculus is, is wrong and we use this as an offensive weapon, as we say in the 2000s, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. Yeah. To what degree is this situation establishing norms in cyber conflict? Is Because this is all new. A hybrid war like this is still relatively new. So to what degree, if any, is this establishing future rules of the road? I think it's it's really unclear. Uh, 
It's a unique situation when we're dealing with Russia as opposed to some of our other adversaries, whether they are nation states or terrorist groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, For one, they've lost a lot of their economic power as a result of this war, but they're still a nuclear-armed country. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also have reason to believe that they have enhanced uh, cyber capabilities. We've seen them perpetuate cyber attacks before, Certainly their involvement in the 2016 election, GRU, Mm. uh, indicates that those capabilities are there. So we know that they could respond in kind. I'm not sure that that would be the case in other cyber conflicts across the world. So I don't think this is setting any broad ground rules for cyber warfare. Um, I think the fact that it is Russia is significant for the reasons that I mentioned. So I, I think... It might not be precedent-setting, but I think it's just an interesting outgrowth of the conflict that we're seeing now. Yeah. All right, well, that article is over on Politico. It's written by Kim Zetter. It's titled, Not the Time to Go Poking Around, How Former U.S. Hackers View Dealing with Russia. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liv Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.